Our reading tonight is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Thanks, Nikki. That was beautifully read. Uh, well, welcome tonight. I'd like to add my welcome to Soul Revival tonight, whether you're online with us, uh, particularly for those of us in West Ride tonight and also in Tokyo. Ray, if you're online, welcome. Also, those of us in Tasmania, uh, Nikki, if you're watching, it's lovely to have you on. And for all of us here at Kirawe, it's lovely to be here and gather in the name of Jesus to remember his promises to us. And one of the things about the wonder of the internet is we can actually broadcast our message so much further these days and get the message of Jesus out into the world. And the impulse for that and the desire for that is actually a really ancient impulse in the church. And what we're going to look at this term, I'm really excited about it actually, we're starting the book of Acts and we're going to look through the book of Acts about that original impulse that the early church had to be empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit to spread the story of the good news about Jesus all over the world. And tonight we come to a very famous and much-loved passage by many Christians. The key verse uh, that we heard read tonight is um, Acts 1.8, which sort of sets the scene for the whole book. And in tonight's sermon, what I was hoping to do is actually give us a bit of an overview of where we're travelling together in the book of Acts and connect it with who we are today and what we're doing as a church. Well, um, some of you may or may not know, but this is actually the 10th year of Soul Revival Church. So this year is our anniversary year. Yeah, anniversary, 10 years. And so we thought it'd be really lovely in our 10th year anniversary to actually be thinking, what is our mission going forward into the next 10 years? Let's not just spend this year thinking about where we've come, but where we're going. And we're really excited about the fact that being 10 years old as Soul Revival Church means that we are actually 30 years old as Soul Revival because Soul Revival Church began as a youth ministry at Guymer Anglican Church in 1992, and it was called Soul Revival Youth Community. 
So it's very exciting to think that this little ministry here in the Sutherland Shire has been trucking along with Jesus for 30 years. It's amazing. I looked at myself in the mirror before I came up here tonight and I thought, yeah, I think I've been trucking along with Jesus for 30 years. I'll put my trucker hat on. So I did. Well, what, what is the instinct that motivates a group of people to continue to talk about Jesus today, in today's day and age? Uh, sometimes the church is a little bit more misunderstood by people these days. Not as many people come to church as they used to. Once upon a time, it was quite common for there to be a cultural Christianity in Australia. By no means was our country a Christian nation, but it was a little bit more cultural to go to church. To illustrate what I mean, uh, most Australians at some stage would have probably gone to a Christian wedding in a Christian church or a Christian funeral at a church. In fact, most people would get married at a church, even if they weren't a Christian. And I remember in the 80s, late 80s, when I was uh, a, a young Christian hearing our ministers at our church talking about using weddings and funerals as an evangelistic opportunity because so many non-Christian people would come for weddings and funerals. But today is very different. Today, not as many people would go to church. To illustrate again what I mean, I, uh, at the beginning of our uh, Soul Revival Church planting story, uh, Matt Redmond, Jai and I had gone to a church planting conference and after the day at the conference, which was on the northern beaches in Narrabeen, uh, we went to a pub for dinner. And while we're at the pub uh, for dinner, we got there a bit late, and I have told this story before to some of you, but I do like the story, so I'll tell it again. We got to the pub, and they said that they'd closed the kitchen. And so I was quite dismayed about that, because I was a little bit hungry. And so to, to, um, to our surprise and joy, however, the table next to us left, and they'd left three quarters of a pizza when they left. And I said to the boys, hey, that, that pizza still looks warm. And, and that, one of the boys goes, oh, man, you can't go and eat someone else's pizza. I said, they're just going to chuck it out. And so uh, after they'd left, I went and grabbed the pizza and we were hoeing into their pizza. It was good. And we, we, we had a beer and pizza and it was great. Anyway, there was a couple of... The reason I tell this story is there's a couple of guys at the other table opposite us. Um, they were finishing their pizza that they'd paid for and ordered. And they'd noticed the shenanigans and they thought that was terrific. So they, carried, they brought their beers over to our table and they sat with us and said, you guys look like a lot of fun pinching pizzas. I said, I did wait for them to drive off before <laughs> I left. Like, I wasn't pinching it. They left it. Let's just be clear. Anyway, the guys thought that was funny. And um, anyway, this one bloke said to me, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a church planter. And he's like, <laughs> he's all discombobulated. And I like that word. I was keen to put it in my sermon tonight. <laughs> Do you like that word, discombobulated? If you don't know what it means, I can explain it to you later because I've only just found out myself. <laughs> but basically it means they're a little bit surprised and didn't know what to do with it. So they're a bit surprised. What do we do with this guy being a church planner? He looks like a normal knockabout bloke and he's eating pizza off someone else's table and he's a church planner. So this guy says to me, why are you a church planner? And I said, because I want to plant churches for people who don't go to church. And he was, if he was discombobulated before, now he's really discombobulated. How many times have I got it in the sentence? You might want to count. Tim's counting. He's already he's like onto it. I'm going to count how many times Stewie gets this in. He goes, why would you want to start a church for people who don't go to church? I said, because I think it's a good thing and it's fun and a lot of people miss out. He goes, that makes sense. Fair enough. He said, if you're into what you do, then it makes sense that you'd want to share it. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And I said, um, yeah, because I really, I really dig Jesus and... Anyway, that started a really interesting conversation. But it all started with the, with the question, what do you do? And because I said I'm planning a church for people who don't go to church, he was really interested in that. 
To give you another idea about how people are surprised about churches these days is my PT, uh, a really good friend of mine, Grant, who I go and uh, do weights with once or twice a week. Um, he and I have a really good friendship as we've been doing weights for the last couple of years. And in preparation for this sermon, I said to Grant, I said, because Grant doesn't go to church, I said to my uh, PT, Grant, pardon? Right, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. So he, <laughs> he uh, where was I? Oh, he was just saying to me, oh, no, I asked him a question. And the question I asked him was, Grant, why, why don't you go to church? And he said, oh, I think the church would fall down if I walked in, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we just had that sort of commentation. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, what do you think happens at church? What's one sentence that you would summarise church? And he said, if I was to summarise church, I would say it's Bible bashing behind closed doors. And I thought, wow, what an interesting statement. Now, to follow that up, I happened to have a meeting with some of the bishops in the city that week. And we're in a meeting and the Archbishop Kanishka was saying to us, we, we need to come up with a new mission statement for the Anglican Church in Sydney. Have you guys got any ideas? And I said, yeah, I've got one I'd like to give a try, Kanishka. And he said, oh, what is it, Stu? And I, Stuart, he didn't call me Stu, Stuart. And I said, what about we call the, Anglican, the Anglican, Sydney Anglican Church Bible bashing behind closed doors? And everyone just went... They're still get, they're still getting, they'll do, oh, thanks, yeah, discombobulated. They're still getting to know me, but Kanishka knows me pretty well. And he's like, what, what do you, what did, where did you hear that? And I said, oh, I just talked to someone who doesn't go to church what he thinks we're doing. So if, if I was to ask you, what do you think we're doing, what would be your answer? What do you think we are doing as a church? Because the answer would be whatever you're doing in your life is what we're doing as a church. And then the second question that comes off that is, what do other people think we're doing? Because sometimes it's good for us to know what we're doing and have mission statements and all those things. But what do other people think we're doing? Well, the book of Acts is incredibly helpful. Because I think what you'll find is that I think your heart will sing during this series if you're a follower of Jesus. Because you will feel in tune with what we are learning about. Because this is a beautiful mission that we are a part of that has been going for many generations. I've counted, I'm not great at maths, but I think there's been 64 generations between us and the first church. 64 generations, I think. And you might want to come back at me at that later. That'd be interesting if I'm wrong. But that doesn't seem that many, does it? Because if you, you can kind of go back in your mind, three generations probably, to your parents, to your grandparents, maybe to your great-grandparents, well, another 60 two, sorry, 61, and you're back at your spiritual ancestors, the original church. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to go back to look at our spiritual ancestors and, and understand what Jesus was doing with them and how the Holy Spirit empowered them to take the gospel out into their community. And the great news is that their community was very similar to our community today. Most of the people in the ancient world that Paul was talking to didn't know much about Jesus Christ and the good news that he brings. But equipped and empowered with the Holy Spirit, they had a mission that was unstoppable. And that's because it was God's mission. And if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight because you just want to check this out a little bit, I think this might be a great series for you too. Because if you're thinking about following Jesus, this has got so much about Jesus in it that it will be so clear to you what Christians are on about and why we are so excited to plant churches for people who don't go to church yet. Because we want to share this good news. Well, let's have a look at it tonight. Let's have a look at this book. And interestingly, when we want to start introducing the book of Acts, 
we actually need to remember that it is actually the second part of the story. The book of Acts was written by a man named Luke, and he has written it, uh, his story about Jesus in two parts. And the first part of Luke, uh, his, Luke's story is called Luke. It's the Gospel of Luke. And the book of Acts that we're reading tonight is the second part of the story. So Luke Acts is one big book, and it's written by Luke as one story. And I get super encouraged by that because I think about how wonderful the gospel story is about Jesus. And through his Holy Spirit, God has wanted the story of Jesus to also be our story. That our story, which started with the book of Acts, where the Christian church begins and starts to grow, is connected. And I said that the book of Acts has the theme verse, Acts 1.8. If you have closed your Bibles, you might want to go there and have a quick look at Acts 1.8. Because Acts 1.8 is in the reading that we heard read. And as I said tonight, what I want to do with this little section is actually use this as a bit of a frame for us to actually frame up the story of Acts so we know where we're travelling over the next few weeks. But if you look at Acts 1.8, it gives us a good introduction. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now this is Jesus talking to his followers while they're still in Jerusalem. And basically he's saying, I am going, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you and he is going to actually help you to spread the message, the good news about me that I have come to tell. Well, before we go into more detail about that, just a little bit about the author. Not a lot is known about Luke, the author of this book. Um, he's a physician by all accounts and a sometime companion of the Apostle Paul. And if you've got a digital Bible there or you're a note taker tonight, you might want to write down or turn over to put a bookmark in Colossians chapter 4 verse 14. Because in 4.14, Paul talks about his friend, the doctor. Uh, verse 14, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send his greetings. So from that verse, we interpret that this might be the Luke who has written this story. A man who's been a companion of Paul, who's travelled with him, and heard the stories about the good news and has had Paul explain it. But also, from a certain point in the story, we'll find that Luke injects himself actually into the story of Acts because all of a sudden, soon, as we uh, go through the story, we'll find it, we start hearing about Luke talking about we in the story. And it's a really prominent and beautiful part of the story because all of a sudden, the story of Acts becomes Luke's story. Presumably, the first part of the story that he writes is being told to him by someone else. But after a certain point in the story, he says, we did this. And all of a sudden, the detail becomes richer and the story slows down and you hear more intimate portrayals of the events and the activities. And what I wanted to point out today and the reason I wanted to brace that tonight is I am excited that the book of Acts is only the start of our story because even though we don't find ourselves in this story of the church expanding from Jerusalem to Rome, which is essentially what the book's about, the great news is, though, that by the time we become a Christian, we can inject our name into this story. And we can start saying we. And that's why I started the sermon tonight, by telling an example of when I shared my part of the journey with a guy in a pub in Narrabeen. And I said, and he asked me, why do you... What, you know, what do you do in your life? And I said, I plant churches. I probably could have had a better answer. I could have said, we plant churches. Because that's really interestingly what the story of the church is. 
But interestingly, Acts isn't about planting churches. Acts is actually about the preaching of the good news. And as a result of the preaching of the good news, people be becoming Christians and then we have to plant churches. So the great news is about this story is if you are in this story, you don't have to become a church planter to put yourself into the story of the Christian church. When you talk about we, you can actually start with the we share the story. We share the story. Now this story is very old. And we think the date of the writing of the book of Acts, for example, is uh, that scholars differ on this, but some say it's about 64 AD and some say it's after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, 64 AD kind of is something that people take on board from, again, if you're a note taker, you might want to write down Acts 28, 30 to 31. For the two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with boldness and without hindrance. So some people think that might be an indication of when Luke was listening to the story and starting to write it down as Paul was proclaiming it and telling the story. Um, others, though, think because the book of Acts seems to lean on the Gospel of Mark, which was written later, they think it might actually be that it, after the, the Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. But either way, isn't that um, a beautiful thing that it's been written so close to when Jesus was alive? Now, scholars think that Jesus was alive around, uh, died rather, and crucified somewhere between 26 AD and 36 AD. So even the later date of 36 AD or the earlier date is still only talking a couple of decades after Jesus was actually walking around that this stuff was written down. So here we get a glimpse into history. We look at the effect of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus on real people and we see how God's mission through real people empowered by the Holy Spirit is effective and nothing can stop it. That's why we've called this term mission unstoppable because God's Spirit is promoting the work of the gospel at this time. Now, the book is written to Theopolis. You'll see that in verse 1 of chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 there in Acts. Theopolis is probably uh, the patron of Luke. He's probably paying for this to be written. And we make that guess because he's unknown. We don't know who Theopolis is from the story. But he says uh, Theopolis's name there in verse 1 in chapter 1 at the beginning of the story. And we think it might be that uh, he's using the Greco-Roman literature technique that when you write a story paid by someone, you put their name in the beginning of the story. Apparently that was quite common in ancient literature. So we think that's who Theopolis is. Uh, but interestingly, the point to make out from that is we, we are pretty confident that Theopolis is a Greek Gentile. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, Gentile is someone who's not a Jew. So what, you might say, what, what does that tell us? Well, it's exciting because up until now, we've seen a promise that the gospel, good news about Jesus, is going to people who aren't Jews. But right through the narratives of the gospels, including Luke's first narrative, we see that Jesus is with the people of Israel, the, the Jews. And now what we see is those, sorry, those early Christians are going to take that message to the non-Jews. And so that's a big theme of this book and a big emphasis. But really, even though all these stories are about preaching the gospel and church planting and people being included in that story, the big news of the book of Acts is it still emphasizes Jesus. 
So when you read Acts, Jesus is the hero of this book and the Holy Spirit is empowering people to spread the message of Jesus. And the message of Jesus is salvation through Jesus. When I was at that pub at Narrabeen and I was spending a bit of time with those guys after we'd finished the pizza and we were talking, after the initial shock that they were talking to a pastor and after the initial shock that they were talking to a pastor who was planning a church for people who don't go to church, we got to talk about Jesus just briefly, really briefly. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find Australians are interested in Jesus for a really short conversation. And I think it's because sometimes they're a little bit worried that a Christian in telling them about Jesus might somehow Bible bash them. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, it's an old term that my generation's familiar with. It, it basically means that they might try and evangelise you, that they might try and get you to believe that message. In Australia, evangelism for many generations was called Bible bashing. And maybe because sometimes Christians haven't shared the good news about Jesus very well. Maybe they've been a bit aggressive or a bit full-on about the message rather than doing it in a gentle, whimsical way that people can access. But what we get in this story is we see time and time again that in the book of Acts there are many presentations of the message, good news about Jesus, that aren't Bible bashing. What we get is a story of preaching and hearing how people continue to be guided by the Holy Spirit in spreading the word of God and to be able to talk about Jesus so that the good news can be heard clearly. The important thing in Acts is not that we somehow persuade anybody to become a Christian by Bible bashing them or just by doing it really well, but we just present the message about Jesus really clearly and let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work because God's Spirit is actually at work in our world. God's Spirit is actually at work as we share the story of Jesus because the Holy Spirit helps people to understand it and helps them to believe it. And the message in Acts is that the gospel good news is accepted with joy, but the other thing you'll notice in Acts is it's also rejected as well. Now, what has Acts and Luke got in common? Well, Luke's written both books and he's shaped them to correspond. And one of the ways they correspond is in the geography of the two books. In the geography of Luke, we see Jesus travelling to Jerusalem geographically. He's starts his ministry outside in Galilee and he moves to Jerusalem. But in the book of Acts, it's really interesting that the geographical spread is from Jerusalem to Rome. So you get this beautiful corresponding geographical branching out. And you see that uh, in a few movements. And I want to draw your attention to it today. If you look at uh, chapters 1 to 12, the first movement of this story in the book of Acts is Jerusalem and Judea the birthplace of Christianity. But then when you look at chapter 13 to 20, Paul takes the gospel from Antioch to Europe. So that's the second phase. The final third is in chapter 21 to 28, and it portrays Paul's trials. And interestingly, Paul is arrested because he's evangelising. He's arrested and set before the same tribunals that Jesus was. And Luke makes this connection with the fact that the same people who put Jesus in a courthouse were the same people that did the same thing to Paul as the story goes out. The Jewish Sanhedrin is the legal Jewish authority of the day. And in Luke chapter 22, 67 to 71, 
you see Jesus on trial by the Sanhedrin. And in Acts chapter 22 to 23, you see Paul in front of the Sanhedrin. And what's really interesting is that the Roman procreator, Pilate, who judged Jesus should go to the cross in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 5, is emulated by the fact that it's the Romans in Acts 24, 1 to 27, that send Paul to Rome. So what's really interesting is not only is Paul teaching the story of Jesus, but in the book of Acts you see that the same opponents of Jesus are the opponents of Paul. And what's the relevance for us? Well, what we'll find in life is we will face opponents. Some of them will be religious and some of them will be secular because the Jewish Sanhedrin were the religious opponents of Jesus saying that what he was claiming was false from a spiritual point of view. And today we will find some people who will say Jesus isn't the only way, Jesus isn't the Son of God, there is another spiritual truth. That's the same thing we'll face today. Just like in Jesus' time where the secular authorities took him to trial, so in our day and age, Christians around the world are still persecuted by secular authorities as well, not just religious ones. And so what we need to understand is that as, the, as God is taking the, the mission of salvation to the non-Jews across the world, there will be opposition. Now, in order to understand this story of taking the gospel out, it's good to understand that there are, that there are six different parts in Acts that help us to move through. Uh, some people call them six panels of Acts. That's a fun word. We might use that tonight. How is the story told as, it's, as it expands from Jerusalem to Rome? Well, if you have a look at chapter 1 to chapter 6, that tells the story of the spread of the good news in Jerusalem by the original apostles. Now, the great news about that is that it was successful after Jesus was executed. Have a think about that for a sec. Take the religious leader, Jesus, who we could actually argue he wasn't a religious leader because you know, he actually... Um, religion is a, a set of man-made ideas about spirituality. But let just give me a bit of grace for tonight and we'll say Jesus is a religious leader who starts Christianity and he's executed after the two opponents, the Jews and the, the, the secular authorities, say we don't want to hear this message in our society anymore. You'd think that that was a pretty good way to stop a message from growing by killing the person who started it. But it had the opposite effect. In the book of Acts, what we're going to read in the early stages in Jerusalem is thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem become Christians. These are the same crowds that were calling for Jesus' crucifixion only weeks and months earlier. What was it that converted a city that called for Jesus' blood? Well, in the book of Acts, the second part of the story, we see the risen Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples. The big moment in human history that transformed 12 disciples of Jesus that might have had maybe 120 people that were travelling together with them into thousands of people was resurrection. That was the moment in human history that changed everything in Jerusalem. And no religious authority or secular authority could stop that. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people was undeniable in that community. In a time before TikTok and Facebook and all these other things we had, 
people told stories of what they saw. And it wasn't just one or two people who said that Jesus had risen from the dead. Hundreds of people saw Jesus. And it caused mayhem. So in chapters 1 to 6, we will see beautiful mayhem. As people are thrilled and excited that actually death is defeated. The biggest enemy we have. Well, the second panel starts off the back of that as that good news starts to spread out, right? So the original people who see Jesus risen from the dead start to talk about it. In chapter 6 to um, 9, actually, uh, you see the first geographical expansion from Judea to Samaria. And again, I'd like to reference 1.8 because that's exactly what Jesus says is going to happen. Have a look at uh, 1.8, which we're using as our key verse tonight. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So there you see what's happening there is Luke is saying Jesus himself has set these, these, uh, the, the story in place before it happens. It's his plan to do it. Now, I was watching a movie last night called uh, King Richard, which won an Academy Award uh, for Best Actor or whatever. And it's the story of Venus and Serena Williams. Have you seen that movie? Anyone seen that movie? Anyway, Serena and Venus Williams were two of the greatest tennis players ever and they were sisters and their father actually trained them in Oakland in San Francisco when they had no means at all and there were all these young people being trained in tennis all around the world who were receiving billions of dollars to, to train in tennis. These kids would have to sweep the court of leaves every day. Super humble beginning. But every, every day in this, and this is apparently based on true story, but every day they go, uh, you know, uh, Richard would take his two daughters, Serena and, and, and Venus, to go play tennis to train them as little kids. He put up little cardboard posters on the tennis court and he was talking to them from the very beginning of his plan for them. He said, one day, Venus, you are going to be the world number one. And in the movie he says, Serena, one day you're going to be the greatest woman tennis player that's ever been. And that's, ever been. that's my plan for you. And in the movie, he goes around and he tells all these coaches, I've got the next world's number one and the greatest tennis, female tennis player that ever was. Here's my two girls, will you train them? And everybody just laughed at them and laughed at them and laughed at them. But at the end of the movie, you see real footage of Venus Williams being the world number one after 24 times, something like that. 24 championship wins or something like that. She was world number one for quite a while. But her sister even surpassed her, and she won 26, something like that. Someone can correct me afterwards if I haven't got that quite right. But it's actually beautiful to see these two African-American women actually fulfil the plan, not just the dream or the hope of their father, but he planned it. And at the end of the movie, they see, you see him being interviewed, and he said, my plan is for these two girls to have this future. Well, if one guy from Oakland can do that for his two daughters who play tennis, if the God of the universe says, I plan to save the whole world and I plan to do it in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and then the ends of the earth, would we question his ability to do that? The great thing about the book of Acts is it's unfinished, but we see his plan unfolding exactly as Jesus said it would. The second panel is the geographical expansion to Judea and Samaria and in that, Stephen is martyred, the first martyr. And all of a sudden, in that second panel, we start seeing Gentiles coming into the proximity of the gospel. The third panel, chapter 9 to chapter 12, is the first expansion to the Gentiles properly as Cornelius is converted. And all of a sudden, the shift of the history of Christianity starts to shift away from Jerusalem 
to this new mission out into the Gentile world. So that the, the person who's taking that mission out is Paul. And he's preaching the message and guess what he's doing? He's planting churches for people who don't go to church. Now, don't get me wrong, he goes to synagogues everywhere he goes when he visits towns. He goes to the synagogue first to talk to the Jews and tell them about Jesus, that he's the son of God and he's actually come to bring true all the, the Old Testament prophecies. But often he's rejected by the Jews. But as he goes around talking to the Jews, he then comes across Gentile, God-fearers and other Gentiles who start believing in the message and the church starts to burgeon away from that. One of the lovely things about our first 10 years of history is we haven't stood still. We've been continuing in that sort of a trajectory as a church. And I'll tell you what I mean. When, when we started the church in 2012, we were a little bit awestruck at the responsibility of starting a church for people who don't go to church. And we were asked by Bishop Peter Haywood, who's coming a week away to plan a church, and we said, yeah, we'll give that a crack. Then after a couple of years, we felt like we'd got on our feet as we had a couple of hundred people coming to Soul Revival and Bishop Peter Haywood came to our week away not to come to speak but to ask us to plant more churches. And we argued with him because it was hard enough planting one church. Now we've got comfortable and we've got that happening. Can't we just rest back on our laurels and say we've planted a church? We've planted a church in Kirawu, we've got this nice factory, we have a Saturday night service, a Sunday morning service and we have a, a Friday night service and he said, no, no, I want you guys to keep planting churches and we said, where? And he said, everywhere. And we didn't want to and I think likewise what we're going to find from the book of Acts is I think the early Christians were quite happy with the huge growth in their church in Jerusalem. But what's going to happen in the story is a persecution will break out and that's why I mentioned Stephen as the first martyr because just as they persecuted Christ, the religious authorities and the secular authorities persecuted the church. But as they persecute it and oppose it, it grows. But in the first persecution, the Christians have to flee Jerusalem and Judea to escape the persecution. And guess what they did when they did that? they took the gospel with them. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on all of them, which we're going to hear about next week, and the Holy Spirit actually helped them to continue to share the gospel as they went. You know, one of the oldest churches in the world is not in Judea or, or Samaria even, or in Jerusalem. It's in Turkey. And it's in a cave. Have you ever, Why would you put a church in a cave? You know that guy who said, oh... If, if I could describe the Anglican church, it would be Bible bashing behind closed doors. Why did he say that? Because he's never been in a church. He doesn't know what happens in here. Isn't the idea of church to do it somehow publicly so people know what we're doing, so they can listen? Well, why would you put a church in a cave? Well, it's they were being persecuted all the way to, to Turkey and they wanted to stay alive. And to be honest, I think that's your first priority in church planning, try and stay alive. That's not a bad idea. Now, some people are martyred for the faith, but you don't go out there and invite the martyrdom. So putting a church in a cave is probably a good idea. They found an early church in Turkey, just recently, the archaeologists, and they think it might be the earliest church that they've found where Christians used to meet and, and, and sing and listen to the Bible underground to escape the persecution. But at least they'd gone out of Jerusalem to Turkey. What did we do when we started planting churches? We didn't go very far to start off with. We went to Woolaware. <laughs> That's kind of like Samaria, isn't it? It's not very far away from, the, from Kirawi. And then we planted a church in Yarrawarra. And then Grace of the Crew have planted at Westride. 
That's what Christians do. We go out. Now, the American church planting literature says that you shouldn't plant more than one church every five years because that would be too much drain on a church. But this Saturday night gathering has sent out 150 people in five years to plant four more churches. And it still hasn't drained us too much because we've done it in the name of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. And the way we've done it is just to preach the gospel. And as we've preached the gospel, people have responded. So you can see that what's happening here in Acts is actually part of the movement of what we are to be in the church in terms of being expansive. The fourth panel in Acts, chapter 12 to 16, is the story of going to Turkey and Asia. Most of the churches were in Turkey. And also the problems that they were starting to have. Isn't it true that we have problems in the church? Hasn't COVID been a cracker? It's been a great problem, hasn't it? It's been up there with one of the biggest kind of problems churches have because it stopped us meeting physically together. And then we've had all sorts of issues around it, haven't we? But did COVID kill our church? Have a look around. The reason COVID didn't kill our church is because COVID didn't stop you being a Christian. And just like COVID didn't stop you being a Christian, persecution didn't stop these Christians being Christians. And as a result, when they got together, they were continuing to tell other people about Jesus. And so the problem was resolved. In chapter 16 to chapter 19, we actually see the gospel overcoming those early problems and going further all the way to Europe. And in the sixth panel, we see how Paul finally gets to Rome and the funny reason Paul goes to Rome is because the Jews call him back to Jerusalem to put him on trial. And then when he's found guilty, guess where the secular authorities say that he has to serve his sentence? At the centre of the known world in Rome. Now, Lou and I and the boys had the privilege of going to Rome once. And one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had is that we got shown by a tour guide where the Praetorium Guard used to live in Rome. The Praetorian Guard were the Roman soldiers who guarded Rome from their enemies. And apparently around there somewhere were the prisons where they would keep the political prisoners like Paul. Guess who they got to guard? Paul. Praetorium Guard. And guess what happened when those Praetorium Guard guarded Paul? The expectation from the secular authorities is their best troops would make sure that this message stays in a bottle with a cork on it. But the problem was they sat next to Paul and he told them about Jesus and they heard the story and they joined the church. And Praetorium guards weren't actually meant to just stay in, Jerusalem, in Rome forever. They got sent around the entire empire. So guess what happened? By sending Paul to Rome, the secular opponents and the religious opponents of Paul multiplied the effectiveness of Paul. Not only did he write down the beautiful letters that he wrote in the New Testament while he was in prison, he also converted heaps of guards who went around the world. Do you know they found recently in England Christian text on pot shards and on rocks in Cornwall that predate the first official missionaries that came from Rome 500 years after these events took place. How did those Christian messages get written on rocks in pagan England they reckon about a hundred years after Jesus died. How did that happen? Well, the archaeologists reckon what happened was Roman guards who were sent around the empire took the gospel with them and converted people in the empire wherever they went. Also, traders were taking the message of Jesus on their trade routes. 
and Cornwall happens to be a trade route between England and the Middle East. They've found all sorts of amphors that were the big amphors that they fill with olive oil and all sorts of stuff. Ordinary Christians were carrying the message of Jesus to Cornwall of all places. And people in Cornwall became Christians and started churches before even the official Roman church sent missionaries to England. This is the power of the gospel. Nothing can stop it. And so we come back to our age and we ask the question, how are we feeling as Christians tonight? Do we feel like we are part of something powerful or do we feel like we're part of something that is a little bit maligned, a little bit misunderstood, something that at best discombobulates people and at worst makes them feel like we're haters and that we're proselytizers and we're extremists? Well, let's just finish the sermon as we begin. When Paul write, uh, Luke sorry, writes to Theopolis, he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken to heaven and after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on that occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift that the Father has promised, which I heard, you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And that's when he says, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his authority, but you will receive power by the Holy Spirit when he comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, as I stand here tonight, Rome is a long way away. Actually, it couldn't be much further away unless I was in New Zealand, that beautiful country to our southeast. But even in New Zealand and Australia, we are here as witnesses of Christ. So we are two things at once, as I want to finish. We are the result of the power of the Holy Spirit to use ordinary people to be witnesses to Christ. Because over 64 generations, people have been faithful generation to generation in making sure there are at least some people in each generation who know about Jesus to pass it on to the next generation. And the first thing is we sit here because the Holy Spirit has been continuing to write the book of Acts all the way up until our time today, in a sense because the story is continuing on. The second thing is, we are now those witnesses who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage us tonight that as we read Acts, we can be excited and joyful about being part of helping to be a church for people who don't go to church yet. To be a church where we can at least be praying for people who don't yet know the good news about Jesus. And if we feel bold enough to maybe even start sharing our faith with those we know and those we love. While some will oppose the message we share, some will continue to accept it because that's sort of kind of been how it's been going for the last 2,000 years so far. There's been Christians in every generation. There's Christians in Australia, New Zealand. There's Christians in China, Africa. In fact, they reckon there's more Christians in China than there are people who live in Australia. According to some reports, there's something like 
70 million people in the Chinese Communist Party and maybe as many as 120 million Christians. There are so many Christians in Africa that now the Anglican Church is strongest in Africa. It's stronger than it is in where it started, in England. The gospel is continuing to go out and my excitement tonight is that we are part of that story. And I'd love for you to join me in writing your name in that story too so that we can say what we are doing with our lives. Amen.